Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I'm here with my good friend, David Porter, with Panini, and he's going to tell us his origin story. I probably heard his origin story back in the day, 20 years ago, but a lot's happened since then. So thanks, sponsors, Panini being the number one sponsor today for this <laughs> well, that's nice. and uh, but also tops and uh upper deck do good things as well and uh, heritage auctions hugs and scott auctions mike stadium sports cards burbank sports cards compc.com and beckett media beckett grading beckett authentication so david welcome to the show i know i i tracked with you when you were on our team and you've gone on to great reward with panini so tell us how you got started and and give us a little bit of a glimpse of your journey Thanks for having me on, Dr. Beckett. It's great to be here talking trading cards as always. I started out as a 10-year-old collector, and the first packs I remember actually physically opening myself were 1971 Topps cards. My 10th birthday, my mom threw a party for me, and I probably had eight or 10 kids, boys, that all came to my birthday party, and we did all the party games and played outside, probably played wiffle ball, then did cake and ice cream, and then opened gifts. And after we got done opening gifts and the party was over and the guys started leaving, my mom had gone and got a whole box of one of the series. I don't remember which series. It was, I was in August, so this was probably like series five of the 71 Tops cards. She was giving each one of them six packs of cards for attending the party. And I was watching these cards walk out of my house, and I'm starting to panic a little bit. So what I did was I just ran outside, and I traded whatever gift they brought me for their six packs of cards. And being a 10-year-old, I thought, man. Brilliant. What a great day this is. It, it really upset my mom because she thought I was being pretty rude. I didn't understand as a 10-year-old, that's not really the appropriate thing to do, but I still wanted those cards. So I, I, that's how I started. I started collecting when I was 10 years old, collected my whole life, all through college, all through all my early career. I ended up with all my friends' cards. Everybody, when they were going to college, was having to sell their cards to pay tuition or for gas money or beer money at college. So I, I bought all their cards. And so I ended up with all the guys' cards I collected with when I was little. Then I just decided I'd really like doing it. And so I applied to Beckett through the Beckett Magazine ad and just applied, sent in my resume, got to interview with your tremendous price guide team that you had at the time. There was hobby legends all over it. And I got hired and I got to be surrounded by all those great guys. In between, I skipped one step. I did have a card shop in Ardmore, Oklahoma for three years in the, in the mid 80s. I got married in 85 and my wife and I got our first credit card in, the, in early 1986. And I was in a Revco drugstore in, in about February of that year and saw these basketball cards I'd never seen before. There were 86, 87 FLIR cards and they were just sitting out in the rack and I was looking at them and the store manager saw me looking at them and came jogging over and said, uh, hey, you interested in buying those? And I said, well, I, I, I'm going to get some. He goes, I'll give you a deal if you'll buy them all. And I said, really? Well, how many is all? And he goes, I have 120 boxes in the back. And I thought, wow, I have a credit card that's supposed to be used for emergencies. This definitely constitutes an emergency. I'll take them all. So I ended up buying all of his 86, 87 Fleur basketball cards, opened quite a few of them. I remember you got three, three and a half sets in a box, put them in my card shop, had complete sets for $18 and had the Michael Jordan up in a little plastic holder on the wall you could buy for a dollar and sold zero. The whole time I had the card shop, they were very difficult to sell. Nobody seemed to like them or want them when they first came out. And all of a sudden they got hot and over the years, ended up not having any unopened boxes. I've traded them all or got rid of all of them since then, but that's my one huge find in the industry. People don't realize back in 86, 87, they didn't sell. So no. people weren't going to buy singles when they could buy a whole box. And get three and a half sets. For 10 yes. bucks. I remember box being 10 bucks. Yep. It, just, it was just uh, amazing. So I've got my own stupid story for that. But who could know that? Because they really were not uncommon. They really did produce a lot. I think Fleer must have thought 
And it, you, you're at Panini now, you realize that projecting demand for a brand new product is not simple. Basketball star had not been a, a marketing machine. They weren't doing packs. Anyway, basketball had been dormant and Fleer, it's hard to say, it was overproduced. That's the crazy. I think you could certainly it say was that. Yeah. Produced in the time, and even for a few years after, it was in disfavor. People get that stuff out of here. And 87, 88 Fleer was not much better. They probably had less produced of 87, 88, and 88, 89, maybe. Correct. Those were harder to find than 86, 87. At any rate, did you put those boxes in your Ardmore shop? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Had them in the shop. And had they gradually open. sold. I sold no. There were two cards that sold out of that set, and it was Doctor J and it was my, uh, Magic Johnson. Those are the two cards that sold. Nobody else cared anything about anybody else in the set, yeah. as far as the people that were in my shop purchasing. I had a complete set in the shop all the time for eighteen bucks that never sold. Had the stickers with it, so it was it was all that. It's just amazing the stuff that happens and that you never can predict. If you'd have told us that story when you were uh, applying to work for us, you <laughs> might have rejected you for not being so uh, dumb yeah you know, one, one, of the, one of the things i want to ask you because you're a smart guy okay so i just want to ask you a personal question sure is that one of the reasons we thought this guy really gonna help us because he's smart he really knows cards but do you have to be smart to get ahead in this hobby all the guys on the panini team are smart guys i know a bunch of them they're smart guys and they care about the hobby but do you have to be smart i think you have to be more passionate than smart Passion takes you farther. Of course, it always helps to be smart. But if you're passionate about it, you're going to keep doing the work until it's right. You're going to keep doing it over and trying new things and not being afraid to bring up ideas. When we're hiring people at Panini for the product development team, we're looking for passion. Passion's what we love. We want people that really want their trading cards to excel. The advice that we give everybody that comes on board is build them like you'd want to collect them. So you build the sets the way you would want to collect the sets. And then we'll talk about it. But if, if you bring what you're looking for in the marketplace to your card sets, you're off to a good start because, so because you're going to be a lot like a lot of other people. So you've turned your FLIR 86, 87 credit card story into a win for you. Yes. Because it demonstrates your passion, not your IQ. Correct. <laughs> Definitely. It was a lot more, man, I got to have these cards than, man, I'm going to be filling up this credit card that I've promise my wife that we would be only use it for emergencies. But yeah, no, you're exactly right. But passion, I think passion will take you without smarts, it's going to be hard to get anywhere. But your passion will be the thing that fuels your drive to being successful. Okay. You know, we go this direction, but okay, the, so the follow-up question, David, is because I think you epitomize this as well is how do you sustain the the passion? Because it's not everybody can sustain the passion and you really haven't taken collecting breaks. I've not. I've never taken a collecting break. I'm not sure. It's just what I've always been interested in. It's just always what I think about a lot. It's always I'm always looking to to complete my sets or go back and start a new set and learn all about it. Something I didn't know anything about. And then as far as as building the new sets, I'm very passionate about making sure that we're hitting and touching all the different price points, making sure we're involving as many people in the industry as we can, because those are going to be the things that make it sustainable down the road. And for a long time, they, everybody considered the trading card industry kind of fading, maybe not as vibrant and bold as it used to be. I don't think that's the case anymore. And, and I love it. It's top of the line imperative that we keep that going. 
If you're building some panini sets right now, what are you building? High end or low end? Or would you just strike uh, something that catches your passion or a certain sport? Or what are you collecting of the panini products? And Well, all of it. That's always been part of my deal is I don't care what it is. If it's trading cards, I'm going to try to collect it. You know, the joke when I first started at Beck was I told everybody that I wanted all the cards. And I said, oh, really one of each card? I said, no, I want all the cards. They said, where are you going to put them? I said, we'll figure that out when I get them all. I don't know yet. But that was my goal when I started there. As far as what we're doing at, at Panini, we have our release schedule that we've published. At any one time, we're working on between 18 and 22 different sets, all different price points, all different player lists. Some of them are all retired. Some of them are rookie focused. You just got to learn your sets as you're going. But as far as building them, I think the hobby's trimmed back some to the 90s now to where the parallels and the inserts, particularly the parallels, are really big drivers in the box as far as, as gaining value and what you can find. And it's particularly in basketball. We found that many of the tougher parallels that for the, the common average player, you can get three, four, five hundred dollars for if it's one of the popular sets with one of the, you don't have to hit a, a, one of the top players. You can hit just anybody, just pull any of them. If you got a zebra stripes card in Prism or you got the peacock feathers in Mosaic or whatever, if you found something like that's pretty scarce, we don't number them, but there's not very many. And you can tell by just how often they appear in the hobby, you're going to be one. And that's a big part of it too. We want everybody buying their stuff, feeling good about what they purchased and wanting to do it again. And with all the different factors that happen in the hobby now that didn't happen even five years ago, let alone 25 or 30 years ago, things like case breaking, the group buys, the things like that never existed. There was never an opportunity for me as a 25-year-old collector to join a, a case break and go, oh, if I'm doing baseball, I want to do the Cardinals and see who I can get out of that. That didn't exist. So that's brand new to the hobby. And it's changed a little bit the dynamic and the pricing and, and how stuff sells and what people are willing to pay for it because there's a different way to distribute it than there used to be. All this is always changing and it's what makes the, the hobby dynamic. There's a different way to collect it as well as distribute it because you'd have to be extremely wealthy. Are you yeah. a master set collector? Because if you are, you need to work a lot of overtime. Certainly. I say I am. I don't have any master sets built yet. <laughs> it's not like I've already settled with myself. I'm never going to have a complete 52 top set. I am never going to have a mantle because I'm never going to be able to afford it. I'm just not, but I'm going to have all the other cards I can get out of it. And I'm not going to stop until I'm convinced that's all I can get. If you're a master collector, it's very tough now with all the one of ones and it's almost impossible to do all that. You see a lot of people going the player collector route. That's the other great thing about it. I'm still trying to figure out how you collect when you're the kid in the candy store and you get all these cards around you. How do you prioritize? I just pick a set and work on it is what I do now. Like, and, if, and sometimes I'll just get in a mood where I want to go back and, okay, I want to go back and upgrade this set, or I want to go back and work on these high numbers that I don't have yet. And I do it in little fragments and I move around. So I'm not working at the same stuff. And you have your places where you go to shop and look, and sometimes you bought out all they have and you have to wait for them to restock or something. So you pick something else to go work on and it just cycles back around. I just do it as I can all the time. I think that's probably why I've never given up on it because I'm not, to the end goal yet. It drives me to keep looking and searching and shopping. It, it, is it more vintage? No, it's much more vintage, yeah. I kind of put, quit putting sets together for me when I started in the hobby in 2000 with you guys at Beckett. When I started, when I joined Beckett, I can stop my collecting for me line there and I go back from 2000. And so that's kind of how I drew the line for me. I was fortunate enough to get to work with you and all the guys at Beckett for three and a half years. And then I went to uh, Donruss and then went through the Panini move and Still here today, building basketball card sets. It's exciting, it's a challenge, lots of industry changes. 
how do you uh, store your stuff? Because you're, you're, it's got to be getting up there. Are you a, a binder guy or a I have, I have all my uh, vintage, like 50s and 60s sets and binders. I have my uh, 70 sets and just little storage boxes. I have all my doubles and stuff and all my inserts and my stuff from the 80s and 90s just put up around the house in different spots. It's, there's a lot. So, you know. Are you selling very much? Or you I don't sell anything. Like, no. Yeah. Avoid the selling at all because, well, first working at Panini, it's not a good look. So I, I don't sell anything. I just buy and collect. Well, you know, you remember from back on our team, we encourage people to be collectors. Sure. And collectors are allowed to occasionally sell. Sure. You, know, you don't have to never sell. But you're right. The look is not good if you're it's not, selling it's a not whole a good look. Especially if I was selling deal. Panini stuff because yeah. that's a really bad look. So I just, I just avoid that at all. And I just don't do it. I'm, I'm a huge collector. I buy stuff all the time. I get probably three or four shipments in the mail every week from eBay, but I don't sell. And I don't know of anybody on our team that does either. I know the, the guys that came from our team, they got that. You really couldn't work for us. Right. No. That. So that's, no, you couldn't. It's maybe not fully understood by people that aren't in that situation where you have all this stuff around you. You know what stuff's worth. That's one of the reasons. Certainly, you're building it. You know exactly what it's going to sell for. Yeah. It's been freeing for me when I go to a show now and I don't have any pricing responsibilities. I can look for something and I'm also not a big seller. I'm I'm more like to buy things. If I see something that's half price, I can buy it now. Exactly right. But but 20 years ago when we were working together, no. Mm -hmm. I could see, hey, that's half price. I could immediately double my money if I wanted to. But I wouldn't do it. And so now I might be doubling $5 into $10, but so what? You know, it's still a card that I enjoy having for a while. Certainly. No. Yeah, you get that. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, David. The the listeners may recognize your voice from the hobby dinners we had a year ago, but that's been a long time. So thanks for coming back on and sharing some of your hobby journey. And all us wise guys have been around a long time, all have regret stories of Selling something's too cheap, but you're in the Hall of Fame for your <laughs> 86, 87 Fleur. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Beckett. You bet. Great. Thank you. Thanks, David. Be back again tomorrow, listeners. The man in-